Hello, my name is Nick Spasic, and you're listening to From and Inspired by a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we speak with author Grady Hendricks about his new book, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Grady Hendricks is a big-time favorite here at the From and Inspired by Headquarters. We've interviewed him twice for movie site Cinepunks and eagerly devoured his books from Horror Store to We Sold Our Souls, as well as his scripts for movies like Mohawk and Satanic Panic. The man's got his finger on the pulse of what we love about clever horror, and we've been eagerly awaiting his latest book, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which is out tomorrow, April 7th, from Quirk Books. So it was a real pleasure to invite Hendrix onto the podcast to discuss his new book, as well as the vampire rock which helped influence it. Thank you for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, thanks for having me, man. This is uh, in this pandemic situation. It's uh, you want to reach people however you can. So this is the uh, your, your first new book since um, 2018's We Sold Our Souls. Uh, yeah. Which, uh, we'll link to our review that I did for Cinepunks a couple years ago. Uh, big fan, obviously. Um, but in the interim, you've also, uh, had a, a film come out, uh, Satanic Panic that you wrote yes. the screenplay for. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's weird. I, I sort of fell into this pattern of being a book a year writer and then scheduling things happened and my editor left my publishing house and a new editor came in and there was scheduling stuff. So it was sort of two years to do this. And I guess, you know, kind of to keep myself off the streets, I really doubled down on screenwriting. Um, so I didn't, you know, wind up wandering around and getting in trouble and doing drugs. Um, so yeah, which, and it was a blast because it's such a different skill set. Um, and, and, but the two sort of inform each other a lot, you know, screenwriting so fuel efficient. I, you know, you really, it really makes you cut out the fat from a novel. Um, and, and it makes you really, it makes me at least really appreciate what books do, which is be sort of so relentlessly interior, right? You're like <laughs> inside someone's head rather than a screenplay where you have to show everything. You can't just have feelings. And you've worked on both of these, uh, the, the, at least the stories for Satanic Panic and Mohawk 
with Ted Geegan. Yeah, yeah. Ted, you know, it's funny. Ted and I started out because he had to do a second movie for his producers. He had a first movie called We're Still Here that did really well. And the producers wanted another movie from him. And he really wanted to do this War of 1812 horror movie. And they were like, yeah, we don't want to do that. So they had sort of some ideas and he was complaining about them to me at a bar one night. And I was like, you know, I've been kicking around this script that I'd sort of started writing about a, a pizza boy who, who winds up getting in trouble with a bunch of Satanists. And um, I was like, if we just gender swap that lead character, this is kind of the movie your producers are looking for. And so he and I locked ourselves in my office for a couple of months and uh, worked out that script for what became Satanic Panic. And they were really excited about it. And then they called them and were like, well, remember that War of 1812 thing? Well, we've got a crew ready to go and we don't want to strike them from this other production. So let's just do that because they're all set to do a period piece. And um, we had like six weeks to do Mohawk. <laughs> um, so it was this sort of crazy. I had Ted in my tiny office way too much for like three straight months. So um, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires is, um, as you state at the end of your intro, is that you, the premise is that you wanted to pit Dracula against your mom. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I just, growing up, I didn't have much of an opinion about my mom and her friends. They all seem kind of like useless housewives to me. You know, what did they, what did they really do? And they had a bunch <laughs> of rules and stuff. And it wasn't until I got older that I really knew them as adults and realized just how much they did, how much they protected us from. And so, it, and, and their lives were really entirely bound by their responsibilities, you know, to their families, to their kids, to, to kind of each other, to the church, you know, all these things that were part of their lives. And you look at a vampire and that's just, you know, that's a predator. Like it has no responsibilities except to being hungry and its own needs. And so I was like, well, put someone completely beholden to responsibility against someone who isn't. And sort of see who see who emerges, you know, and what's left of them. What I find uh, fascinating about the book is, like, of all your novels, I think this is the one that comes closest to being sort of your own paperback from hell. Like it's <laughs> it's 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 got a lot of violence and a lot of uh, it has sex in it, and uh, like it, it it's very much of like it sets a such a specific time and, and just inhabits it like and i think that's like the mark of like a really good pulp paperback is that you read oh, it thanks. and you're just like in that sort of time and place yeah well you know listen if they made the paperback of this mass market size with like a red foil cover <laughs> um and and you know a, a, one of those cutouts that you open it up and it's like oh my god that kid's possessed uh i couldn't be happier i would see it as being sort of embossed peaches and then the the blood coming out of the peaches would of is course red have foil red foil or spot yeah. varnish and like in, in inside one of the fang holes in the peach, you can see someone's face. And then when you open it, there's some step back art that's like, you know, oh, it's someone's face. But like it's a severed head that the vampire's holding. So the, the, the thing about the novel is that it's very much um, it, it follows in line with a lot of your other books in that. And I guess even tying in with Mohawk and Satanic Panic, it features uh, a a woman protagonist. Yeah. I'm 
I, I, I don't know why, what my problem is. I just don't write dudes. I, I, I've got an issue. I need to work it out with my therapist. Well, I think, it, I, I think it's like, there's always that issue where it's like guys write about guys. Right. And, and um, like in, in this, did you like talk with your mom like about um, her, her life? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my mom's life, I know at this point. I mean, I'm in my 40s, so we've we've done those getting drunk together, talking <laughs> about stuff nights. Um, the hard thing for me with this book wasn't was really writing about parents. And so I actually spent a lot of time with about five friends of mine who have kids and just really grilled them. Uh, because I, I don't have kids, so I don't know what the hell that feels like. And it's actually the key to figuring out parents for me is when one of my friends told me, I love my kids more than anything in the world, but I don't really like them very much all the time. And I was like, oh, got it. Like suddenly I understood what they've been talking about. Well, that's that's the part that I like hit me really closely because it's that idea like every time i hear about people who are like oh my son or daughter and i are best friends it's like why are you best friends with a 16 year old (laughs) yeah exactly i mean you know here's the thing i mean kids are boring you know and that was one of the interesting things someone said to me about kids they're like it is so freaking boring raising kids. They're like, kids like the same thing over and over and over again. And they're like, in a certain point, you're like, you're like, you just want to scream. You don't want to see the same movie 19 times. You don't want to have the same thing for dinner every night. You don't want to eat any more chicken fingers. Like, you don't want to go on vacation to Disney World every year. Like, the kids really like that routine and repetition. They're like, it's horrible. It kills your brain. Now, the, the book to me like has what i i see as like having you know it it has its influences and the thing that i i was comparing it most to like it has this sort of fright night element to it um or even going back i mean you know fright night is itself influenced by hitchcock's rear window where it's just the 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 idea of your neighbor as someone evil yeah well you know it's funny i am an idiot because i love fright night and i didn't realize it until i had a draft of this that i was showing people you know to get feedback and stuff but it was pretty much there And someone's like, oh, I love it. It's Fright Night. And I was like, what? (laughs) And they were right. It's completely Fright Night. I was, it blew my mind. I couldn't see it. But I mean, in terms of influences, absolutely Rear Window. I love the idea. Rear Window and all its variations, you know, the Shia LaBeouf, uh, Disturbia, um, every variation of Rear Window, the conversation to some extent Mm. by the Francis Ford Coppola movie of, seeing something and trying to put those pieces together and convincing people that what you saw was real. That whole idea of trying to convince someone that, that your perception of reality is right, I think is, is just been fascinating to me all my life. And then on top of that, the other big influence for this was true crime fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, the first sort of, you know, Truman Capote gets all this credit for starting true crime, and and that's BS. I mean, In Cold Blood's a, a great book, but he has nothing to do with the true crime impulse, because that really comes from Anne Rule and The Stranger Beside Me in 1980 or 81, when that first came out. Um, 
that's what set the template for modern day true crime fiction. And it is an incredible, incredible book. I mean, if people aren't familiar with it, Anne Rule, who at that point is just a, a housewife who makes, you know, money for her kids to live on. She's a single mom. She makes it by writing for true detective magazines and, and, and writing articles about, you know, cops and things and, and small investigations. And she gets her first book deal to write a book about these co-ed murders. Um, and as she sort of starts investigating them, those eventually they become the Ted Bundy killings. And she has no idea that the number one suspect or who becomes the number one suspect is her really good friend, Ted Bundy, who works next to her at a suicide hotline several nights a week. And so it's this incredible book about a woman hunting for the perpetrator of these murders who's sitting right next to her. It's it's one of the most astonishing books of the 80s. And it feels like, I mean, I think I've had this discussion with a couple of people like true crime is having one of its many moments that it's had over the years right now sure with i mean like um i believe uh everybody is talking about that netflix series right series right now um oh yeah 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 tiger king or whatever yeah like like that that's the big thing that everybody's watching while while quarantined um, but I mean, like there's, there, there, there are podcasts like last podcast on the left or my favorite murder. Um, and I think like my favorite murder is like a very good sort of thing because like that was the podcast that really sort of demonstrated like the, the, the fact that like the biggest consumers of true crime are, are women. Um, yeah. and, and you very nicely uh, tie that in. Like that's what their book club <laughs> starts yeah, out. Yeah. As. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, like in terms of like other vampire influences, um, like you, like he's, he's a cool vampire, which is like very much like something that not like vampires in like the fifties and sixties were sophisticated, but like in the, I think in the eighties, is really when vampires became like they started doing movies where like vampires are cool, like the lost boys, the yeah. hunger near dark. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because one of the things with those vampires, right? Like, um, like in the lost boys, one of the cool things about the vampires is they're outsiders. You know, it's like the whole fantasy of run away from home and be part of our awesome gang and, a dude's going to play saxophone and fire's going to come out of it. And the same with Near Dark, where they sort of wander the country and, you know, they're, they're off the grid to some extent. And I always found that really disturbing because it's, <laughs> it felt like, well, what's the next step? I mean, they're going to live forever and, and just basically wind up being homeless. Um, I always preferred vampires like Jerry Dandridge and Fright Night, you know, um, you, you know, even Salem's Lot, just to jump back for a second, you know, Straker, oh, yeah. Like, he's gonna eat everyone in that town, and then what? Like, you know, I liked people like Jerry Dandridge and, and, you know, vampires like that who had a game plan. They wanted to fit in. They wanted to, to be a part of life. And that's one reason this book takes place in the 90s, because I feel like that was when people who had smarts around them, like, like James Harris, the vampire in my book, realized that you need a bank account. 
You need a home address. You, we're coming to a time when there's going to be computer record keeping, when you're going to need a photo ID for anything. And if you don't have those things because you've been around for 200 years cruising around in an RV or, you know, just hanging out with your cool dudes under the boardwalk, you're screwed. What do you, you want to sleep in the dirt forever? Don't you want a house? And Miss Mary provides like this interesting connection to the past and sort of demonstrates like it ties everything into like that idea of like a criminal, like always returning to the scene of their crime. Like, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, like realizing that, you know, she, she, she knows who, who James Harris really is and like what he did. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you know, it, it's funny. Um, there's this line where in the book where this, this sort of line, I don't mean a literal sentence, but of, these women looking out for each other because they're moms and because they know what each other's going through as a mother and as a woman and as a, as a wife. And, and this is a common experience. And I wanted Ms. Marion there to be, well, yeah, even from the previous generation, she loved, even though she can't show it because she's got Alzheimer's, she loves Patricia, who's her daughter-in-law so much that she comes back from, you know, that she w- finds a way to warn her um, when she needs it most. And I really love that idea of these women looking out for each other, even generationally. But And the other part of it is Ms. Mary is very much based on my grandmother, um, who lived with us when uh, she, we at the time, she was just getting old. It was the 80s. Uh, we didn't say Alzheimer's. But now we realize she had Alzheimer's, and it was brutal. It was really, really brutal, and we did the best we could, and it probably wasn't good enough. But it was weird for me because I was little at the time, and I only remember my grandmother is this crazed woman who was out of her mind and demented and angry and and suffering and and hard to be around and and someone I, I really had a hard time with. And, you know, when I was a little kid, when I didn't have any memories, she loved me very much. And I and I knew that in theory. But the reality was she was a monster to me. And that was a really hard thing for a kid to process. And and it just sort of she just kind of slipped into the book. And, I, and I'm glad I was able to do that because I wanted to, I don't know, write about it and kind of settle that out for myself. Well, I mean, she's like a very important character. Like she is the linchpin yeah. on which like all of the ladder action turns yeah exactly and i i I guess i wanted to give my grandmother a hero moment you know (laughs) well it works out great oh thanks the the thing about like like some of these like films we've talked about is that you know they are like very uh cool and like the the they're all the soundtracks for these films are very like there aren't really upbeat vampire film soundtracks, <laughs> right? Like, uh, the, I saw. I think it was uh, earlier this year uh, at the at the Alamo uh, Draft House in Kansas City did a like a secret screening where it was a movie on thirty five that they couldn't tell anybody what it was until you showed up. Yeah, uh, and it right. was near dark. Um, oh yeah, and. Uh, I think like, one of my friends was like, I don't know if you know you did this, but like when Tangerine Dream, music by Tangerine Dream came up on the screen, like you cheered. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an exquisitely awesome soundtrack. I mean, 
you know, Tangerine Dream's one of the sort of unsung heroes of 80s movies. That Thief, The Park is Mine. I think they did Sorcerer, Near Dark. I mean, um, I don't think they have any tracks in Manhunter. But, like, I mean, they really, when you think of the 80s and you think of that, those scores, I think a lot of people in their head, whether they know it or not, are thinking Tangerine Dream. And and often their scores are better than the movies. I mean, the score for The Park is Mine. It was a made-for-TV movie. They did the score for The Keep. Who remembers The Keep fondly, you know? <laughs> um, but Tangerine Dream really, if, if, if music has a look, then the look of the 80s is the music of Tangerine Dream. Absolutely. And, like, the... The, the the soundtrack to vampire movies um like it always has to be cool it has to be kind of dark and that like always carries through um when when i first like talked to you about like talking about vampire music like the 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 song that immediately leapt in my head because of like the southern setting of this book it is bloodletting by concrete blonde because it is just and I'm so glad that you were you you included that because it's it's so swampy. Yeah, <laughs> like the, the well, humidity is such super a super sexy, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got to you know one of the funny things is we're talking about vampires being cool, but that's really an '80s thing, you know, like like you know near dark and the hunger and and movies and fright night where vampires go when you look at vampire films from the 70s they're kind of campy and when you look at them from the 60s they have this gothic atmosphere that's a little overripe and the vampire is very clearly the bad guy even if he does have some cool he has the cool of like a lee van cleef you know there's some menace to it (laughs) um but yeah, but Blood Lidding's in a, you know, that's one of those songs that just, I mean, Concrete Blonde just swings. And they're such a sexy band in terms of the way they sound. And the thing I love about Blood Lidding is unlike there, another strain of sort of metaphorical vampire songs, yeah. they're literal vampire songs. <laughs> like, it is literally about a vampire in New Orleans. It's, it's basically an Anne Rice book made into a song you know it's like it's like the way blue oyster cult literally yes. sings about literal vampires <laughs> over and over again like they just do sort of the dorky guy version and concrete blonde does the cool chick version well and i, I think not for nothing did concrete blonde show up on like so many like oh my god 80s yeah soundtracks like uh the, i think a lot of that had to do with the fact that enigma was putting out a lot of those soundtracks but um the well and also also you know one of the things that makes concrete blonde so catchy is the lead singer was their bass player yep. like the person who wrote all the songs was their bass player so they all have these really groovy bass lines you know that are just really sexy and hip swinging and um you know even their songs that are sort of like dear windy and stuff like <laughs> that are that are really sad it's like they've got these really sexy crunchy bass lines this is apropos of nothing, but when I worked at college radio, like back in the nineties, we had, we obviously had concrete blondes, bloodletting album and the B side of it. Somebody had taken like a, like a pocket knife or something to it. So it uh-huh. was unplayable so that nobody could play <laughs> Joey ever again. Uh, which I always found hilarious. And, uh, I was kind of thankful for <laughs> What was the B side? Do you even remember? No, I mean, like it was the full LP. So, like, it oh, was, was oh, Joey okay. was on the B side, uh, was on the second side of the album. So that way, nobody could play it. 
He's dead is sort of like the vampire song i think that yeah. like if you if it it makes it on halloween playlists and everything and it is obviously it opens the hunger yeah uh and you yeah, go ahead no uh what's very interesting is uh i did an interview a couple years ago when uh daniel ash was touring as part of pop tone and i was asking him about like oh you're in the beginning of the hunger and like you've got like this song and all of that and he didn't rem he's like i don't really remember much about it <laughs> and i was like but it's it's iconic like people have written essays yeah. about like how like this is this is goth on film yeah well, and, you know, I think it's one of the funny things is, I mean, first of all, Bella Lugosi's Dead is overplayed as it is. <laughs> it's really the first goth song, you know, that sort of established that that template. And so it's so important. It's so good. And then you've got it in The Hunger, which is not only one of, I think, one of the better, if not best, vampire books from the 80s. But it's also the movie is really, really underrated. I think a lot of people think of it as this, oh, 80s music video, flashy Tony Scott stuff. And it's, it's like an ad or, or a video or something. It's like, no, this is a movie where the style is the substance. Um, it's, it's when the, you know, towards the end, it kind of falls apart somewhat. But like, you know, that that opening sequence, I mean, that's everything you need to know about vampires and sex in that world. The whole sequence where David Bowie's waiting in the waiting room getting older, like it's like that's everything you need to know about vampires and, and aging and time. Like the, the style is the substance. And I think to dismiss it is really, really arrogant. It's uh, I think it's such an important movie and so good. And like it's it's sort of encapsulates like um like the modern take on on vampires yeah um yeah well the, the, the vampires you know in the 70s there was this sort of sublimated sexiness to vampires and in the 80s that's when it and i would even say that it started with ann rice but the 80s is really when like Vampires could be sexual, not just sexy, yeah. uh, and were expected to be sexual. Well, in, in in like one of the like vampirism has been um, like we're talking about it in the eighties and like onward. It's always been like a very uh, it, it it it's been used as a metaphor for various forms of sex or sexuality, but um, like 
it's it's been a metaphor for like so many different things. I mean, it's like been like a, a like you had on your list Vampire Blues by Neil Young, which is like an idea of oh, like yeah. vampires as like financial vampires. But you also have Night of the Vampire by Rocky Erickson, which is like uh, like uh, so many of his songs are about like mental demons and you know like the things that feed on him yeah well you know it's interesting because you get in that metaphorical vampire thing right like um we'll talk about it more when we talk about uh bad brains but like yeah that real metaphorical vampires or a or symbol of capitalism that goes all the way back i mean you look at 19th century pre-dracula uh, editorial cartoons, and it's like vampires. They represent <laughs> the Irish question, the question of home rule, alcoholism, capitalism, socialism, the clergy. Like they're they're an all purpose metaphor. But then you get to someone, yeah, like Rocky Erickson, who horror movies are. I feel like how he made sense of his mental image, like or his mental illness, like his head. The inside of his head was a haunted house for him and full of monsters and things. And he found a way to, to be at peace with that, to turn that into his art. And there's nothing less cool than a Rocky Erickson song. His playing is, is strained. His voice is strained. He's so earnest, but he elevate that, that earnestness, that lack of irony, I think really elevates his material and really turned it into something truly beautiful. And, you know, there's other, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Wesley Willis, oh, who yeah. was a, a schizophrenic musician out of Chicago in the eighties, I think sort of one of those outsider musicians right. like Dennis Johnston, but he has a vampire song called I think, vampire bat. It's oh, bonkers. Yeah, that's it's a, fun. That's a, um, that's, yeah. But, but it's interesting to see, you know, artists who have like, you know, who have, who have mental health issues, you know, that these horror images become metaphors that let them kind of express what's in their heads in a, in a really gorgeous way. Oh yeah. Like one of my favorite Rocky Erickson songs is devil town, which has the line, all my friends are vampires. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like exactly. That, I mean, that, who hasn't felt that way? Exactly. Like that, that represents like, uh, I think like, uh, like a certain awareness of his situation. Uh, like, well, that's always the tragedy with Rocky Erickson, right? Like, you felt like he was a victim of his his situation, but very much aware of it and had perspective on it. So it's like, well, that's hell, you know. Like, yeah. you know that you have this problem, but you still have the problem. And like, I think the the the, the most speaking of self awareness, like one of the the next song we're talking about is Hot Blood Soul Dracula. And yeah. like you mentioned it before, like the campy aspects of uh 70s vampires, and like this is it's it's a novelty song, but it also yeah. sort of ties into like the seventies saw like Hammer's Dracula AD nineteen seventy two, which is, you know, uh Christopher Lee as a vampire in swinging london yeah with a fantastic score it must be said you know it's um go ahead sorry oh no the score to that film is just like the the funkiest thing that ever came out of hammer like it's it's like it's it's such an aberration in terms of like hammer vampire scores it's very much worth tracking down oh yeah and you know it's um there's a a whole sort of like uh, subcategory, subset, subgenre 
of like goofy vampire movies, right? I mean, oh, yeah. there's like, um, whatchamacallit, Once Bitten, you know, yep. from the 80s and uh, Love at First Bite from the 70s um, and, you know, Saturday the 14th. And, <laughs> um, and, and there's always been this kind of element of, of funny campiness to the Dracula image. And you look at songs like The Monster Mash or um, Orvin Yeos, who's sort of an obscure guy, but wrote a song called The Vampire that sounded as country western novelty song. And one of the things that I find fascinating about horror movie imagery like that is in the 50, well, really the 50s, 60s into the 70s, horror was kid stuff, right? Like until the 70s, especially in the 50s and 60s, horror was for kids. It was in comic books. It was in cheesy movies on TV and that kind of thing. And but kids wanted to talk about sex. They wanted to talk about violence. And they saw the sort of metaphorical meat in these cast-off monsters. And I think that's where, when these kids all became adults in the 80s, that's when vampires got sexy, because they, they, they'd seen it. You know, here's this kooky Count Dracula with this cloak and this velvet shirt, and he's all corny with this accent and his hair slicked back. But then... He does this really intimate thing where he like bites your neck and leaves a hickey and sucks you and eats you. Like, you know, I mean, kids saw that there was there was sex there, no matter how much they were laughing. Exactly, and and like like novelty songs about um, the supernatural, the paranormal. Like, there are innumerable compilation albums uh, you can find out that are out there um like they were very popular subjects uh especially like in the 50s and 60s amongst like garage rock and rockabilly artists like it's just like um those songs were for teenagers and teenagers certainly like those movies were also for teenagers um well it was also they were taking the sort of cast off detritus of pop culture and making things out of it you know that is that is that is the the cramps writ large. Yeah, exactly. And and listen, talking about you know sexy, what's sexier than a disco song? <laughs> that is a, that is a song that is meant to get you sweaty and close to another person, uh, and, and moving your hips. Uh, and uh, that, yeah, that's and not it's a metaphor just for awkward sex. enough to be authentically German. <laughs> exactly. Now, now. Uh, uh, less awkward and very direct. Um, uh, like you had mentioned a couple misfit songs and uh, those, those are almost too cartoony, but I felt like talking about just if like, while the subject matter may be more akin to uh, like vampire blues, uh, like FVK fearless vampire killers by bad brains is just, such an appropriate song to end this discussion on, especially like just as that title applies to this book. Oh yeah. Well, and it's funny. It's, um, you know, bad brains are directly political and there's, there's a whole substrate because I, I know what you mean about the misfits. Like they're, they're kind of like the cramps, but faster and more serious. Um, but even then, like We Bite is a really aggressive song, sort of like, you know, you're a normal person, we're vampires, we're going to kill you. Whereas in Bad Brains, Fearless Vampire Killers, FPK, they're killing the vampires. The vampires are the rampant <laughs> forces of capitalism that like Neil Young sang about in Vampire Blues. Um, but there is this weird thing, right, with like punks identifying 
with vampires, uh, We Bite, The Misfits, uh, We Hunger, the Susie and the Banshees song, uh, which is sort of from their earlier punkier years. Um, you know, but yeah, it's this idea that maybe vampires are sort of cast off misfits who are coming back to bite you, or maybe vampires are the rich people who suck the blood out of everything healthy and alive to stay, you know, unnat to prolong their unnatural lifespans and they need to have a state driven through their heart. Either way you slice it, the metaphor works. Exactly. Um, like I know like uh, the, the groovy ghoulies have put out, like they, I think they've, they, they, they have hit like that sort of like unabashed sincerity of D- Daniel Johnston mixed with mm-hmm. sort of like the campy, uh, like cartoon comic book punk rock of the misfits, although they are very pop punk. Um, <laughs> like they have so many vampire uh, songs or <laughs> monster songs as well. Yeah. I, I, no, I don't know their music at all. Uh, the, they, they have a, uh, they have a song called she's my vampire girl. Uh, <laughs> well, that's like a theme, right? Like, um, like like half the uh, I think that which song is it the Blue Oyster Cult song that's like oh is it I love the night where it's like he breaks up with his girlfriend and then he meets like a cold pale girl <laughs> wandering outside and it's the same thing with um the Misfits uh Vampira yep. you know it's like like that's the other vampire right there's the dude vampire and then there's the like goth undead lady vampire who's sexy too Vampirella uh, Vampirella exactly the, the, the alien sexy vampire from the planet draculon (laughs) so great um we're gonna put a a playlist of all of the songs that you made up on spotify to for everyone to check out and listen to now uh this book will be out um the day after this episode goes live so uh all right uh for 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 those folks who have not already pre-ordered it uh how would you recommend that they get their hands on it any way you want. I mean, you could do it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble online. You can do it on bookshop.org, which actually finds an independent bookstore near you. And the pre-order goes from them like an affiliate or just pre-order, call into your local bookstore, email them and, and pre-order it that way. Um, and, you know, it's interesting just to say something about pre-orders, you know, People often say, like, what can I do to help this author? And what I have to say again and again and again is pre-order their book. It not only lets book buyers at stores, whether it's Barnes & Noble or your local book nook, like, know that, okay, there's some demand for this. We should get more copies in. But every pre-order counts as a first-week sale. And that's what everyone looks at to get on the New York Times bestseller list, to to look at how your book's doing, what your publishers, all those people. That first week is so important these days. So, yeah, want to help an author? Pre-order their book. There you go. Well, Grady, thank you uh, so much for... Oh, dude, thanks for having me. This has been an absolute blast. I hope your book, when it comes out tomorrow, in quotation marks... Um, uh does really well um uh oh one last question i i this book has already been optioned yeah it um so this got optioned by there was actually a big um like i guess a bidding more there were a bunch of people who were interested in it and um they uh there was um folks looking at it and we wound up um selling it to amazon to become a series that is fantastic. Some of my favorite series uh, as of late have been on Amazon. I think they're doing very interesting work. Um, so 
keep an eye out there, folks. Um, again, thank you so much. I have. I hope you have a good weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, this has been a real delight. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, man. All right, stay safe. Thank you. Bye-bye. for talking with me. You can find the author at his website, which is at gradyhendrix.com, on Twitter at Grady underscore Hendrix, and on Instagram at Paperbacks from Hell. His new book, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, is out tomorrow, April 7th, from Quirk Books. You can find links to purchase all of the music you heard on the show, as well as The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, in the show notes for this episode, which are at fromaninspiredby.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at FromInspiredPod and can be found on Instagram at FromInspiredBy. You can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Click those follow and subscribe buttons, please. Also, please hit up the website and click on the Aid and Assistance button to help pay for web hosting and long-distance fees. And remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We'll be back in two weeks talking with singer and actress Caitlin Carver about her work in reality competitions and her new single. Until then, thanks for listening. 